Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Yields around the world have plunged to near or record lows in the past few weeks. The question is, how low will they go? What is this a response to? Is it monetary policy alone, or is it the idea that we're headed for a global downturn? Joining us now is Eric Stein, Portfolio Manager and Co-Director of Global Fixed Income at Eaton Vance, which oversees $460 billion in Boston. Eric, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with your prediction going forward. Have we seen the lows of you? U.S. Treasury yields in particular? Um, well, first off, thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, great, great question. Uh, you know, I, I still think we probably will head lower at some point, um, you know, both given just pressure from global monetary policy, where, where one central bank cuts and then more need to cut, uh, as well as the U.S.-China trade war. And, you know, what's interesting to me is, you know, everyone was focused on the Fed meeting last week with the, you know, slightly more, more hawkish than expected, but cut. Uh, and then when the trade war ramped up, you just saw massive, massive amounts more, more in interest rate volatility from the trade war and the tariff tweet from Trump than you actually did from the Fed meeting. So, Eric, I was wondering kind of what the House call is on the economy uh, as you guys with your vast holdings. I mean, we seem to have a growing concern about the global slowdown. It might create a global recession. How are you guys viewing it? Yeah, so I think, you know, first off, the great thing at being in a place like Eaton Vance, we don't have a house call. We have, you know, lots of different portfolio managers running running different funds around the firm. We all have our own uh, different views on the economy. So that there is no house view uh, per se at Eaton Vance management. But, you know, I will say my own particular view is that, you know, the economy is still okay to pretty good. You know, globally, you see strong consumer, strong labor markets, yet weak investment. Uh, what, you know, what would concern me is just that, you know, uncertainty and, and lack of investment that we've really seen for for some period of time has ramped up. And if the trade war rhetoric and tariffs ramp up, uh, you know, that could lead to to further concern. So right now, the U.S. economy, consumers in very good shape, labor markets in very good shape. It's just the delta um, based on investment is is what's concerning people and and concerning me as well. Eric, it's interesting. You say that people have different views within Eaton Vance and are able to execute on them. What's the biggest debate among portfolio so, managers, so, there. Yeah, so you know, I'd, I'd say one debate I have with some, some of my colleagues on you know is is does the does the yield curve matter? Does does the shape of the yield curve, uh, you know, actually mean anything? And you know, I have been you know personally of the view that uh, the yield curve connotes information, and investors should not ignore information. I, I think I wrote a blog post on our Eaton Vance website. You know, ignore ignore it at your peril. You're talking uh, about the three know. month tenure or the two year tenure or yeah, all of them. All of the above. You know, I don't get so precise on you know which comp- part of the curve because I think you know focusing on a couple basis points inversion here or there I think is missing the bigger point. Uh, and certainly there are arguments, and sometimes my colleagues make them that look certain parts of the curve are, are you know are uh, are misleading because of, of you know Fed purchases and other foreign central bank purchases and treasuries. And I think all that's true. Um, but to me, when you see uh, you know significant moves in the curve, it's telling you information. So if you go back to the Fed meeting last week, that hawkish cut. Um, Fed cut rates and the yield curve flattened uh, pretty dramatically, which is not typically what a central bank would want to see uh, when they're cutting rates and trying to ease monetary policy. So, Eric, we have over $15 billion or trillion dollars of negative yielding debt out there in the marketplace. What do you think that's telling us? 
I think it's it's telling you know well a few things. One is there's uh, you know a lot of countries that have negative interest rates uh, at the front end, whether that be Europe, Japan, uh, Switzerland, uh, countries like that. Uh, in addition, it's just saying you know some of those places. I'd say particularly in Europe, and I think of Germany. You know there is just too much demand uh, for that debt relative to supply. And you know typically my own view isn't I'm, I'm usually not a big big believer of fiscal stimulus uh, per se because I sometimes think it's misguided, but I think in the current environment, and particularly in Europe, and particularly in Germany, the market is effectively demanding more debt. And I think, you know, in Europe and Germany, I think we will see more fiscal stimulus uh, down the road, and I think that's very much needed. So uh, you previously worked on the markets desk of the New York Federal Reserve, which makes me want to ask so many questions to you about what we've recently seen in terms of the turmoil there uh, and some of the people uh, who have departed. Are you concerned that the Federal Reserve doesn't necessarily have the market insight to be able to telegraph their intentions effectively? Uh, I, th- I would say you know, that's not a particular concern of mine. You know, as a, as a veteran who worked uh, in the New York Fed open markets desk in 07 and 08 and the, really the beginning of the crisis, you know, and I still keep in touch with people there, there are lots of, you know, very talented professionals that whose job it is to, um, you know, talk to financial market participants and kind of gauge market reaction of, of various, um, you know, Paul, of various monetary policy actions, whether that be Fed cutting rates or or operations with the balance sheet, or even sometimes, you know, Fed speeches, where I think it, it becomes challenging is when there are, you know, Fed speeches that are sometimes designed to kind of give a, a Fed Reserve uh, officials kind of medium-term view, um, but market participants kind of are, are well, looking at it word by word. And I think that's where the, the Fed's communication, you know, gets really, really challenging. Well, and then there's also the expectation currently baked into markets that there'll be four rate cuts by the end of next year. Do you think that the Federal Reserve will deliver on that? So, look, honestly, to me, it's 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 about the the trade war, and it's about you know what you see with inflation expectations. I think we will get you know significantly you know, more rate cuts from here, uh, and then it's really what happens from that. Um, you know, and I think that the Fed, you know, if anything, would like to be forward looking uh, and do more rate cuts earlier, and not to have to get to to the zero lower bound issue. And I think you know to some extent it was tough on the communication. Again, last week it was all before the trade war uh, tweets uh, heated up. Again, um, but but by cutting rates, but doing so in a hawkish manner, you know they didn't really get inflation expectations up. So to me, yes, the trade war matters, um, but it's also about inflation expectations. And if I were the Fed, I'd be concerned that that inflation expectations are now lower uh, than, than they were uh, before uh, before they cut rates. So Eric, given your sense that that rates are likely to go down, what is how does that uh, kind of position your view on emerging markets? Yes, yeah, so you know, I, it's a great question. I, I think that's, you know, to me, one of the real beneficiaries of this race to the bottom in developed market yields is emerging markets. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we at Eaton Advanced Management, we, we take a very much a country-focused approach uh, to investing in, in emerging markets and trying to find countries that are, that are going in the right direction or avoid or short countries that are going in the wrong direction. But just from a broad asset class perspective, certainly having a lower base rate uh, in developed market yields, whether that be U.S., Europe, or, um, or Japan, that, you know, th- that makes the broad asset class you know, all that much more attractive. So you're buying EM, just real quick, 30 seconds, what else are you buying? 
Uh, so like emerging markets in treasuries, if I had to own treasuries, I said I think rates may go down, but obviously there's not a huge amount of value. I like tips. Uh, I think I think the Fed will ease to get inflation expectations uh, higher. So so I like I like tips. Also certain parts of, of the mortgage markets and credit markets as well. But you know I think we're central banks around the world are going to try to get inflation expectations up. So in addition to U.S. tips, we like uh, New Zealand inflation-linked bonds. We like Thai inflation-linked bonds. So other inflation-linked bonds around the world as well. Eric Stein, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. Eric's a portfolio manager and co-director of Global Fixed Income at Eaton Vance based in Boston. Well, as interest rates grind lower, home buyers are finding it more affordable to buy. So let's get the latest on the housing market. We turn to our good friend, Logan Motoshami. He's a senior loan officer for AMC Lending Group based in Irvine, California. Logan, thanks so much for joining us again. Um, again, interest rates, boy, we've had them you know, kind of touch or get near some very uh, long-term lows here. Give us a sense of what's going on in the housing market in this interest rate environment. Well, the 10-year yield finally got to my 2019 forecast of 1.6%. We've had a big reversal since the lows of yesterday. But in regards to the uh, mortgage market, right now we're seeing an uptick in refinances, but we have to be mindful that we were working from 21st century lows in uh, in refinances. So it's not like we're having another refinancing boom. I don't think we'll surpass 2016. 2016 never surpassed the 2012 refinance boom. So until uh, the 10-year yield can actually break under 1%, um, we'll, we'll have an uptick in, in refinances, but a lot of that are, are the buyers of homes from 20, 2017 to 2018 when mortgage rates are higher. Those people can do rate and term refinances. You're looking at roughly 9 million home buyers at that, uh, with those two years combined. That helps them get a little bit more disposable income. In terms of existing home sales, even though mortgage rates are lower, sales are down slightly year over year, inventories up, but new home sales, that's where lower mortgage rates has really helped the housing market is the recovery in new home sales and the monthly supply drawdown uh, in, in that data line. Okay, so let's dig in a little bit there because we do have the 30-year mortgage rate, at least as measured by Freddie Mac, uh, at the lowest since 2016 and, and continuing to fall in tandem with yields. I'm trying to figure out how much of a boost is that to the U.S. housing market and where? I mean, really, the, the, the best place to look is the new home sales data. I mean, new home sales were trending recessionary toward the end of uh, 2018. Monthly supply spiked up to uh, o- about seven months. And when rates got lower, because that's a 90% mortgage market, that's where the demand recovery came. So, And because of mortgage rates are low, what's going to happen is that the year-over-year data for all housing data is going to be positive now. Uh, because the comps are a lot better, and that's where we're, we're going to start to see year-over-year gains in existing home sales, pending home sales, uh, housing starts, and uh, new home sales. And that's where it stabilized the market enough to where we're not uh, going lower anymore. So that's kind of how you should look at it. It's not really boosting uh, total home sales as much as people would like. So, Logan, give us a sense, maybe, uh, are there any geographic uh, areas that are sticking out to you that are particularly strong or weak? Pretty much everywhere outside of the coastal areas are doing fine. The areas that, you know, like, for example, California, uh, inventories up, sales are down, things are taking longer to sell. That's, that's a weakness of demand. Now, lower mortgage rates have stabilized, I would say, 
the California market. It's stabilized maybe the, the Seattle markets uh, as well, but they're not really boosting demand on a year-over-year basis, even with the inventory increases. So those places are just pricey, and there's just the, the level of buyers are just not there. But if you look at California home sales for 10 years, it really hasn't done much. So we're just working off of these, you know, some up years, some down years out here. Well, and we have seen a slowdown in luxury home sales, certainly in those areas, as well as on the uh, on the East Coast in New York City. And I'm wondering, where are we in that sort of downturn cycle? You know, the luxury market, you know, mortgage rates, you know, sometimes doesn't really impact that kind of market. It's, 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 it's money. You know, obviously, we, we see the, you know, foreign buyers are down, you know, from China. So that impacts just a little bit out here. But again, uh, we're getting to areas where when you adjust it to inflation now, home prices are starting to get to levels to where in, during the housing bubble years, you needed exotic loans to really boost the luxury market out here. So you, can, you need to keep an eye on that because, you know, there's no more exotic debt anymore. So pretty much everyone who owns a house can own a house uh, in real terms right now. But uh, back during the housing bubble years, you know, this is where you needed, you know, exotic products to boost the upper end of the market. We don't have that anymore. So that's that's an area to always keep an eye on, considering where we are in the home price uh, days. So, Logan, um, where are we in terms of kind of the credit quality of the mortgage market right now? That was obviously, uh, you know, a big, big issue uh, in the financial crisis. Kind of where are we now in terms of credit quality? Credit quality is excellent. And we've never really had tight lending in America, even from 2008 on, we just lend to the people that can own a house. And I think that's the difference. Uh, uh, this is the best loan profile I've seen in my 23 years. There's no exotic debts out there. The FICO scores, which means these homeowners have really good cash flow, are very high. They're very good out here. And the, the best part is that the nested equity, the equity position from buyers from 2010 to 2016 looks really solid. There's no cash out boom. This is as good as it gets in terms of credit quality in the history of America right now. And I hope we don't ruin it. You know, I know there's a lot of people out there that says lending is tight. I totally disagree with them. This is how it should be. And uh, you'll see that when the next recession finally hits, we're not going to have a mega wave of defaults like we had in the previous cycle to really uptick supply. It'll be more late cycle lending, you know, low down payment, low FICO score, uh, home buyers running into the recession because they have no selling equity. But uh, the credit quality, I cannot stress how wonderful it looks in this cycle. So, uh, Logan, you nailed it when you had your call uh, for 10-year Treasury yields. They did hit your target price for the year, and they have bounced from there, currently uh, trading at 1.75%. Where do you see them going through the end of the year? Boy, that really, you know, I think that tweet you and I had about, you know, 15 <laughs> days ago, we said, yeah, it could get to 160 with one sell-off in the stock market. But you know what? Panic buying. That's what I saw. The last few days uh, was was just panic buying, similar to what we saw in 2012 and 2016. Now I'd like to say, hey, we got to the 160 level and that's it. We should we should hold the hold hold that level and yield should rise. And I've always held at this 160 level because I've always had that in my prediction articles for the last five years. But right now we have a lot of things in play that I just can't you know I can't model out you know. Who knows what Trump's going to do with China? Who, who knows what tr- uh, China's going to do? Uh, Brett Exit 2.0 is going to come at Halloween. Imagine adding that to this dance right now. There's just so many headline risks. But in terms of the economics, because PMI data uh, has the ability to even go lower, that can drive uh, 
uh, yields lower globally and here. But we're not going to have a double-dip manufacturing recession that had the same kind of impact as 2016. So I will hold the line here at 160 and say that this is the low for the year. But if you get PMI data to get worse, if you get the China and, and Trump trade wars to start you know, going at each other left and right, if bread exit two becomes really messy, then absolutely, not only could the 10-year yield go below 1.3%, we could take the 10-year yield below uh, 1%. But those are things that yeah. we can't control. I mean, you Look, just can't control those. Logan Motoshami, thank you so much for being with us uh, and sharing your insights with us today. Logan Motoshami, a senior loan officer at AMC Lending Group, uh, joining us on the housing market and yields him saying that 1.6% on the 10-year probably is the year's low Well, I would like to give a narrative to today, Paul. Yes. I think that there is a narrative picking up, which is people have exhausted themselves having themselves having a tantrum over the prospect of a global trade debacle and are basically now going back and looking at specific companies and actual economic data. Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks Editor, joining us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Do you think that that's fair? I mean, it's sort of like a, a child, a toddler that has a tantrum and then only can go on for so long before they just get tired. If that's how you want to characterize that's how I'd like it, to characterize it, go for it. <laughs> you know, because there's certainly a, a number of examples where you're seeing some positives here that are being well received. Think about a company like Advanced Micro Devices, right? I mean, I'm thinking about it. Okay, <laughs> big name in the chip business. Well, they come out with this new uh, processor for server computers called Epic. And they tell you that Google is already using this chip in their data center uh, equipment. And so what do you get out of that? A gain of almost 12% biggest in the S&P 500. You know, and you can go from there. I mean, you had numbers out from booking holdings and TripAdvisor. So we're talking, you know, online travel there. TripAdvisor's numbers didn't look that great at all, but they're reaffirming their full-year projections and the stock's up 10.5%. And booking, whose numbers look better uh, for the second quarter after coming up short of analyst estimates in the first quarter, up about 6.5%. So, you know, you can find enough of those stories to give people some comfort at a time you know, when the bigger picture, when you think about trade and interest rates and currencies and you name it, it is looking a bit unsettled. You know what I'm thinking about today? Not trade or currencies. I'm thinking about ketchup. So our good friends at Kraft Heinz had. Of and, course he is. <laughs> exactly. That's Paul Sweeney. <laughs> had ketchup on a Thursday morning. Our good friends at Kraft Heinz, uh, kind of a rough quarter they just reported. And it's so rough that they don't even give guidance. So investors are spooked. Stock down 13 14%. Let's break it down uh, with our good friend, uh, Craig Giamona. Uh, covers all things consumer for Bloomberg News. He joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Craig, give us kind of the highlights or lowlights of what we're seeing here. So they haven't reported earnings since February. February was when they put out the release basically saying that they had an SEC investigation, $15 billion write down, weak profit numbers. They did an internal investigation, found some accounting problems. They haven't filed earnings for two straight quarters. So this was the first six months of 2019 that they put out and the numbers are bad. Profit and sales are down. 
And, you know, the new CEO, Miguel Patricio, he's a longtime Anheuser-Busch guy. He's been in there for a month, took over July 1st. And basically, I think what we're seeing here is the extent of the challenge that he faces as he tries to mount a comeback at a company that really was never supposed to be about growing sales. It was supposed to be about buying something else. And this thing has been kind of off the rails since they got rebuffed by Unilever all the way back in 2017. Okay, so Warren Buffett has admitted that he just overpaid for this acquisition, That's correct. right? That's so right. he's come out and he said, uh, you know, not that it was a mistake, but it was a mistake. My question is, what are the main problems here? Bad brands. Nobody, I, I mean, that's, that's well, so, you know, and it's, I'm not, I'm not making a joke. Like the problem here is that they put this company together to build a gigantic food company, a la Anheuser-Busch, right? So what they did was they took Heinz private, they slashed all the costs, they produced industry leading margins. Year and a half later, they bought Kraft, slashed all the costs, fired thousands of people, got the margins way up. February, 2017 rolls around right on schedule. We're buying Unilever for 143 billion. Hold on a second. Paul Pullman, you know, basically rebuffs them. The deal doesn't happen. Since then, the market cap has just gotten absolutely destroyed because this isn't about building brands. So here's my question. Dave Wilson, question of the day. Does this just go to show that big conglomerates are a thing of the past? Because we've seen the big conglomerates in industrial space uh, in spaces uh, certainly be in a breaking up cycle right now. Is this evidence it just doesn't work in today's environment. Well, when you think about conglomerates, you know, that word implies you're talking about a company that cuts across a whole bunch of industries. And Kraft Heinz, you know, as much as even buying Unilever, if they'd been able to do that, they still would have had a focus on food, uh, maybe household products to some extent. So, you know, a bit more focus. It's the challenge of size, basically, at a time when you have all this competition. I mean, you back Words up, smirts. you know, <laughs> you know that the folks who, who are in charge of Kraft Heinz are also in charge in Anheuser-Busch InBev, and they're dealing with competition left right and center and and having challenges come out of that and you know you think about the food business you're sort of in a, in a similar position i mean a lot of stuff happening on a local level so you know that's really the yep. the issue for this company it's not necessarily you know conglomerate isn't exactly the right word you know just Behemoth is more like it. <laughs> so, Craig, I'm looking at the stock here. It's uh, down 53% over the past 12 months. It's 52-week low today. Is there a solution for this company? What is what's So, here's the real problem. I mean, the, the thing with them was they were always had... The idea was that they had Buffett behind them. The bank of Buffett could come along and they could basically do another deal to get back to what they do best, which is cutting costs. The problem now is that with the debt they have, with the stock where it is, they can't do a deal. And especially since Buffett is saying you know, basically I made a mistake and, you know, Jorge Paulo Lamont, the chairman of 3G also has kind of admitted that this didn't really work out the way we thought. So the question is, what's the way out? They have to boost growth. They have to sell more food. And when you look at their brand, it's like, how is that going to happen? I mean, things like Maxwell House and Orida, you know, and, and Capri Sun and Oscar Mayer, these are not brands that are on trend with what people want these days. So I'm going to have a moment of truth here. <laughs> we're going to go around, we're going to go around the room and we're going to say what our favorite condiment is. Craig. Mustard. Ketchup. Paul. Dave. I like sauerkraut on my hot dogs. <laughs> but like without anything else? 
No, I'll have a little mustard too. Okay. But mustard, interesting, because I'm also mustard. I'm yeah. not ketchup. And I actually, my kids are not into ketchup. I mean, look, Heinz ketchup is probably their strongest brand. That's in like 98% of American households. Ketchup's not the problem for them. You know, that, I mean, it's not, it's not, gr- <laughs> no, seriously. I yeah. mean, Heinz is like one brand that has not been disrupted. You know, right. people still want Heinz. You know, Hunt's the second brand is way it's far still. behind. That's an example of, you know, one brand that is sort of impenetrable as far Maybe as the U.S. Maybe people household. don't have enough boxes of macaroni and cheese That's hanging right. around in their pantries. Yeah. Oh, I, I do, though. The Dave Wilson, <laughs> Stocks Editor, and Craig Giamona uh, covering all things consumer-related for us here at Bloomberg News. A number of countries have come out and issued warnings to residents who might be thinking of traveling to the United States in the wake of some of the mass shootings. The latest to do so is Japan. The question is, how is this, uh, among other things, I mean, aside from the the, the human tragedy uh, that we have seen with respect to these mass shootings, how will this affect the tourism industry and the international appetite to go to the United States? Joining us is Dan Wozniak. He's senior equity analyst with Morningstar in Chicago. Dan, so let's just get started there. Do you think that these types of warnings, the latest being out of Japan, will impact the tourism to the United States? Well, I think what we've seen uh, in you know past terrorist attacks, uh, for example, in France, is that yes, I mean, when when these human tragedies do occur for a period of time, that can subdue travel to that country. Um, you know, that being said. Uh, you know, international travel as a percent of overall travel within the U.S. represents about four, maybe five percent of total room nights. So um, just to give a little bit of context there. So, Dan, it's interesting. What Have you seen any impact, I guess, just historically from geopolitical issues, just generally speaking? I know it's a you mentioned international is kind of a smaller, uh, a small piece of the pie. But historically, has it been a, a, an issue that the companies have called out? Yeah, well, you know, some of the data that we see uh, is that actually U.S., their global share or our global share of international travel, it's been declining for the last three or four years. So in 2015, our share of international travel was around 13.7%. Last year, it ended at 11.7%. And it's probably reasonable to assume that some of that has to do with, you know, trade tensions more recently, uh, immigrant rhetoric, um, you know, the the recent warnings uh, around the mass shootings uh, and hate crimes and and perhaps other things like a strong dollar. But, you know, this is something, you know, uh, you know, that's all these add up to kind of a picture where the U.S. is slowly been losing some share here. Where are uh, where are we losing share in the United States? In other words, where are tourists mm-hmm. sort of coming less from? What, what parts of the world are people avoiding the U.S. Uh, in a way that they hadn't been in the past? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, what countries are, you know, maybe shying away more from the U.S. I know, well, actually, China is one where, you know, last year represented the first year where Chinese travel to the U.S. was actually uh, negative growth. Um, so that's that's one region. Um, you know, Marriott had their call this week, and there was a little bit of discussion in the U.S. that the top 25 largest markets, uh, that there has been a little bit of a slowdown in some of the demand that they've been seeing there, too, which maybe kind of supports the overall point uh, of the U.S. for, you know, various reasons, losing some share to, uh, you know, the international travel uh, coming to this country. 
So, Dan, I'm looking at the uh, hotel stocks right here. It looked like some good, solid double-digit gains for the stocks year to date, uh, led by Hilton up over over 30%. What's the investor call out there in the market on hotel stocks right now? Yeah, you know, these are good business models. Uh, they, they, the, the growth is really driven by having hotelers join these brands. Uh, and, you know, that type of growth for some of the larger companies like Marriott and Hilton uh, is around mid-single digit. Um, you know, I guess the one potential uh, or two potential warning signs I would say is, well, you know, some of the travel slowdown that we've seen recently, uh, you know, some driven by geopolitical events and others just by, you know, cyclicality slowing down would be one thing. And, this year represents the 10th year that we're going to have positive demand growth, uh, and that's a pretty long uh, time. Uh, typically, the, the cycles last maybe seven to nine years, so we might be getting a little bit long in the tooth as far as this cycle. But, you know, otherwise, good business models give you pretty good growth, uh, and I think, you know, that's being rewarded in the marketplace today. Dan, I'm, tr- I'm struggling to sort of uh, put these two things together, the idea that the U.S. is losing share when it comes to international tourists, and yet you're seeing solid growth at some of these tourist-focused chains like Marriott. Where is the growth coming from? Yeah, so it really, it's it's less about, um, you know, room night growth, rooms being filled is certainly one driver of growth, but even a bigger driver for these guys is getting, you know, boutiques to convert into, say, a, a Marriott flag or brand, or have uh, third-party hotel owners decide to build a new hotel using uh, the license of a Marriott brand or a Hilton brand. And it's that unit growth that, you know, is, is driving, again, mid-single-digit growth for these companies. So even if the, the revenue per available room or the amount of people that are going into rooms, even if that's slowing, and it has, it's slowed for probably like 2%, 3% growth uh, last year to 1% to 2% growth today, you know, that's a smaller growth driver factor relative to the units that these guys are, are, are seeing, the unit growth that these guys are seeing. Dan Wazilek, thanks so much for joining us. Dan is a senior equity analyst at Morningstar based in Chicago. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.